Hello everybody and welcome to yet another episode of Sisters in Colour, the platform where we bring you amazing women from around the globe who are movers and shakers in their field. Today I have a kindred spirit in the world of diversity, equity and inclusion, the amazing Dr. Rosa Fayelet, who is a researcher and has just recently finished her PhD doctorate. Welcome to Aboard Sisters in Colour, Rosa. Thank you. My pleasure, Christine. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm delight, delightful to be here with you today and with yeah. your audience. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And thank you so much for doing this at such short notice. We had a conversation earlier and I was going to record a different um, recording for today, but I thought the conversation we were having earlier was good for us to bring to this uh, to this platform and just have conversations. So Rosa, I always start our podcast with uh, a bit of background on who you are. So can you tell our audience, who is Dr. Rosa? <laughs> Dr. Rosa, a, a woman, a migrant woman who came to Australia uh, to study and pursue her uh, uh, postgraduate studying. And then I uh, also uh, have a little bit of background of working as industry in overseas. I actually moved from my country of birth, which is Tehran for more than 20 years. Um, and I moved to overseas and I work as a consultant uh, um, and um, as a kind of a business um, uh, development uh, managers uh, for government and public sector organization for a couple of years. And then I moved here uh, in Australia to pursue my, my study. Um, so at the moment I completed my PhD. I am working as academics at Federation University. I'm teaching and lecturing and course uh, convening uh, for MBA uh, uh, level postgraduate students in business school. And, um, and, um, and that's what I'm doing currently. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. So do you want to tell our audience a little bit about your research? Because I know you've been researching some interesting things around diversity, equity and inclusion, particularly in that workplace space. Do you want to share a bit about your research and maybe at a high level, just some of your findings? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, my research was about focusing on effectiveness of diversity and inclusion policy and practices from employees' uh, perspective. Uh, and I also did a little bit of quantitative study in terms of comparing uh, the employees uh, from a migrant background and non-migrant background and understanding their perceptions of whether diversity and inclusion policies um, are effective and, and whether that impact on their perceptions of inclusion. Um, my research actually identified uh, uh, many interesting areas. Um, and one of them, it was that uh, interestingly, migrant and non-migrant employees are, are perceiving that diversity uh, and inclusion policies are effective. Mm -hmm. However, they thought that practices of management, the way they try to treat employees or support them in terms of being heard or being included, that's impact on their perceptions of inclusion. So this means uh, it's very 
it's critical for organizations um, that to to train and 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 to understand how they can effectively practice and implement diversity and inclusion. Because traditionally, we try to look at diversity um, and inclusion in terms of okay, we have people from different backgrounds, people from different identity, people from different sexual or oriented or genders or women, and then we are then diverse organization and also so we have now in the organization this people are working with us now we are inclusive but really my research is trying to show different level of diversity and inclusion and saying diversity and inclusion yes it's important to have different people and, and their representation within the organization but also now you have different people you need to focus on your implementation and practices especially the way that managers are trying to work with migrant uh, and non-migrant employees because that's really important for sustainability for growth for uh, for obviously talent management for organizations and so on um, and that's my research is uh, is was focusing about excellent and that's very interesting to me because as you know i'm a diversity and inclusion uh, consultant and work in this space and your research um you know you know i've been fascinated with your work ever since you started in this space because i don't think there's a lot of research in an australian context around how diversity and inclusion is is happening here i also think people confuse um the number ticking exercise that diversity can be with actual inclusion and creating that strong sense of belonging in that organization and creating that psychologically safe environment where all these diverse people that you're bringing in can actually thrive within your organization. So what did you find in terms of your research? Uh, what are employers doing to actually create that safe space? So they are saying, um, you know, as you noted, diversity and inclusion policies on their own don't work without the implementation side of it. So in terms of the implementation, is it still very much a tick the box exercise or are employers starting to actually realize that you need to invest in the implementation side of things, which is what a lot of us are very passionate about? Yeah, it's a very good question that you are asking. Actually, it's it's mix of it's mix of everything at the moment, and of course, uh, some organizations and some industries are, at you know, as per my research, it shows that they are moving towards realization of understanding how the implementation and practices of diversity and inclusion important is important because my research is really identified that it shows that you know when you practice. Um, inclusion, when you try to support people, when your HR uh, practices are effective, when you are supporting your employees, employees are uh, uh, perceiving your organization as being inclusion or not. So it's really critical for organization to therefore tr uh, provide training opportunities for their management because at the moment uh, we know so many of Australian organizations, uh, managerial practices are you know it's just about day-to-day -day activities getting things done and focusing on what organization goals are and how we can support our customers and how we can achieve the best outcome uh, for our businesses or for our organization but my research it shows managers when they are working in a multicultural setting and working with the people from diverse background the way that they try to treat their employees the way they try to provide opportunity for their people the way they will try to practice 
um, uh, diversity and inclusion is um, critical for for their employees, you know, uh, well-being and organizational um, achievement and sustainability, obviously. And, and I think that's a really key point to understand. And I think employers need to understand that diversity, equity and inclusion is the long game. Like it's not, there's no pill, <laughs> you know, there's no quick fix. There's no any of that. It's a long-term investment. It's about a culture change. It's about a shift. And it's also about a mindset. And I think one of the challenges that I see Australian corporate organizations facing is that challenge around the limited diversity within executive. So how willing did you find in your research were um, those who are making decisions in corporations, how willing were they to actually start to make the change? Or is it a case of the world at large is kind of forcing them and compelling them to think differently and act differently? Did you find that there was a lot of willingness at that senior executive level? Well, I found out in the particular organization that I was actually uh, doing research, I found out the managers are passionate about implementing diversity and inclusion and practicing it. The problem was they didn't know how, they didn't know what is the effective practices of diversity and inclusion and how they can do it. It's, so this shows that we really need to work around awareness and training. Um, you know, we did, as you said, because diversity is a matter of shift of mindset, a matter of um, change or revolution. And that itself is critical for organizations and it's critical for people to, to, to plan and understand how effectively they can develop the knowledge of this shift of uh, mindset and, and, and move towards the, the change of uh, practices. So, um, therefore, um, I think, as you as you well said, it's a really matter of time and it's a matter of how we can work collaboratively within our society, within our community. Of course, media also plays an important role, creates a platform for us to discuss as uh, diversity and inclusion activists and advocate and, um, you know, a, a, a consultant um, and practitioners, researchers. I think we all need to get together in these aspects um, because um, then it will become effective and, 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 and then it can bring the, uh, bring the change for us. Um, I think it's a really teamwork uh, across uh, across all level and across um, every industries and organization. And and as you can see, organizations are really willing um, to improve their um, their representation of diversity diversity of a people people from different characteristics. But what I also find out in the policies, while policies being effective. But some of the aspects of policies being silent itself. And that silent itself is create confusion for managers how really uh, effectively can practice the diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, with regards, for example, how they can support uh, people when it comes to the intersection of aspects of, for example, being a woman of um, or, or, you know, any individual of any background of migrant background, and then you have characteristic uh, of identities uh, uh, that involve in, in being a diverse person, you know, so how that intersections can be managed um, through the best practices of uh, diversity and inclusion, that itself is very critical. 
Yeah, and you brought up a really critical point, Rosa, which I don't think in the diversity and inclusion debate, particularly at an organizational level, there's good understanding around. And I'm really glad that you brought up the, the knowledge gap because we see it all the time when we go in as consultants and talk to organization, there is a willingness to do something. And there is a realization that something needs to be done. But the, there isn't an awareness of who is the something, what, sorry, what is the something that we need to do? And who is the something that we need to do oh, it with? And how, so we the, and how we can do it. That's true. So I think both of those things are really, really, um, all three of those things are really, really critical. And I think it's important to have the conversation and raise awareness about your research and what really uh, people can um can lean to in terms of the Australian context, because a lot of the reports that come out in the space at the moment are like lean in reports, uh, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's um, organization that does a lot of work with McKinsey uh, and McKinsey as well. Those kind of reports are really setting the gold standard of what research in the space looks like, but they're based on the US cohort. So they're based on the American experience. And we know that the American experience, as much as people would like to think that's the global experience, is not the experience. So what is happening in corporate America is very, very different to what's happening here. And so that's one key point and one real value in, in the research that you're doing and other scholars that they're doing. So we had a conversation a while ago about, you know, setting up almost a think tank of uh, people like yourselves, uh, people like Faiza, people who are research and who are scholars in the space, but are researching from an Australian context. Because I think the more literature is out there on what is actually happening from an Australian perspective, I think the better um, solutions that can be developed to support and answer the question of the what, what do we need to do for Australia? Because we can't just import solutions from the UK, from the US, we can't, because we are on a, on a journey um, that's at a different stage that involves different people um, with different intersectionality, different complexes, um, different environments. And so we really need to understand there's an element of um, there's quite a paucity of research, in my view, on what's happening in the Australian context. And that's something that myself as a consultant, I'm really screaming to see a lot more of. So I'm really excited um, and want to get into your into your research um, a lot, uh, a lot more and really understand any further research that you're doing, how we can tap into that and how we can get that out more so that people know. So are you, what publications are you publishing in terms of your research? Like where can we go to, to access information and get more around your findings? Um, yeah. Where, where can people access that? Uh, at the moment, I am actually drafting a publication. You know, academics publication takes time, and yeah. uh, and I'm actually drafting uh, uh, two uh, two different kind of journals uh, and uh, preparing for submitting uh, to a journal. I'm not sure when it will get published, but you know, uh, it might take time. Uh, hopefully it will be soon, but it always takes time when, when we are doing a publication in academics journal, as you know. Um, you know, coming back to the point that you were raising about this diversity and inclusion practices and aspects, one of the really interesting also aspects I found out within the policy itself 
I found out, for example, when it comes to the parental leave, you know, you see that small things, which is really was highlighting in my uh, PhD that it's an, a research that it's, it matters. Um, I found out that, for example, for parental leave, that when we have this policy, it's well written and well supported. But obviously the people who are single, par single parents or, or people who are, um, don't have a children because we know that people are changing and our society and community are changing. And there are so many people uh, who don't wanna have a kids or they are coming from different identity background, the LGBT groups or different type of uh, family group that they don't have a kids. And we actually didn't have anything addressing that how we can support people with regards creating this balance of a parental leave. Because when people go for a parental leave, then obviously the people who are not parents, they cannot benefit from this leave. And there is no other leave who can support them how they can benefit from this type of leave. So, you know, this type of things is really a matter of how we drafting our policy and how we are trying to practice then you know that itself it create confusion for managers how they can treat and create the balance and equity and inclusion for people from different uh, demands or different requirements or different characteristics um you know in order to avoid workplace conflict or uh, equality uh, you know so it's really critical the way we have to look at now our diversity and inclusion policies and practices and as you said uh, we have a long way to go no, I agree. And another example, just along the same lines, is the remote working and working from home. Mm. There is, um, there is, uh, you know, a school of thought around. Okay, how does, how does this, how do you apply a fairness around this? So two weeks ago, I was facilitating a session with. Um, you know, uh, people in the local government sector. And one of the questions um, that was asked was, well, I don't have kids, right? The, one of the biggest arguments or the biggest benefits of, um, uh, you know, working from home has been, you know, the impact on people who have carer responsibility. So whether it's for a child, a person with a disability, an elderly parent, um, somebody who is sick, any of that. So any of those carer responsibility. But what about those people who have chosen not to have kids or who do not have any carers or who do not have any dependencies, right? If you then base your remote working policies around giving preferential treatment to people who have carer responsibility, how do you split that from an equity perspective? The other one is religious holidays, for example. So we live in a Christian country, but we also live in a multicultural country where we have people of all walks of life in terms of their faith. How is it fair that Muslims um, have to take um, a recreational day for Eid and Indians have to take a recreation day for Diwali when us, as uh, when those of us who are Christians actually get the day off um, as, as a bonus? How do we create a more equitable system when we've got public holidays that are based along religious lines and we've embraced a community where everybody is diverse and everybody has different, different faiths? So, for example, Jewish people will observe Shabbat on a different day to Christian people and Christian people normally have the Sunday off. So there's all of these conversations that are now starting to happen around how do you bring a fairness lens around it 
around it all. And I think it's it's really, really complicated, but I think it's it's really conversations that we need to be having and conversations that need to be founded in research, conversations that need to be really grounded in what are the considerations? How do we think differently? Um, the other conversation is how do we repurpose the CBD, for example? So we've traditionally seen the CBD as a place or the central hub of business. Now, suburbia is the central hub of business. You know, a lot of businesses um, didn't go back to the office, you know, and I kept saying to people in my workshops, well, you can't really hit a reset button and go back to pre-COVID because you can't ask the question, well, what do we do before COVID? That's irrelevant. We've moved That's on. That's right. No, absolutely. And and I have identified all those issues as well, remote working and also people from different characteristics. And I found that in the policies that really we still silent. Also about people who are from DORF, for example, how we are facilitating their a working uh, condition, their well-being. It's it's a, it's a lot of silence around those groups of employees. So uh, uh, yeah, a lot of work to do. And I think uh, we ha we have to really work together as a um, as a team. And uh, I found that it's really there are a lot of lack of research and and a gap within the knowledge of um, knowledge and practice. And we need to really work um, towards, uh, you know, slowly, slowly uh, to improving this condition, <laughs> hopefully by seeing the near future. I'm an optimistic person. <laughs> yeah. And it's good that you're an optimistic person. Now, I just want to shift the conversation a bit. Um, you are um, a, a powerful uh, and wonderful Iranian woman. And we have been watching in horror as everybody else has been around what's happening in your country. Now, one of the things that I really try to do with this platform is to bring awareness um, but have conversations in a really conscious and thoughtful manner. This is not a topic I've discussed on any platform at all, simply because I want to be very respectful to the story of the Iranian women, and I want the story to come from them. I don't see myself as a keyboard warrior and just putting comments because I come from my personal value is in everything that I put out, I want to make sure that I do no harm or do because there's lots of unintended consequences. So I want to be really, really careful around how you trade on things where you, they don't have, they may have an indirect impact on you, but they don't have a direct impact. And you also don't have direct knowledge. So that's where I come from into this conversation as, you know, providing this, this platform to have it. And so when we were chatting a bit earlier, you mentioned a few things and I, you know, and I kindly asked you if you would graciously come and educate us on really what is happening from somebody who has firsthand knowledge of what the situation is on the ground, debunk for us some myths that are in the, in the media, because, uh, you know, the media is not a source of truth, is not the single source of truth. Um, there's also perception uh, that people have, which are incorrect. So it would be really good as an Iranian woman to really, first of all, just take us back to how we got to where we are. Let's just start there. How did we get to where we are today and what we're witnessing? Well, thank you actually for your consideration and your uh, thoughtful attention to my country and, and, and women of, especially women in Iran. Uh, you know, since 1979, when this uh, revolution uh, 
um, uh, happen. Actually, I won't even call it as a revolution because these, uh, these people, they come and occupy my country and this uh, religion. And, you know, there is nothing to against any religion specifically, but these extremists, they come and, and try to harm uh, my country and occupy it. And since this occupation, uh, occupation happens through these people, women are, are the first group of the society that uh, they being treated in equality and they being treated uh, uh, poorly, and they uh, they've been forced to wear compulsory hijab. One of the one of the really um, aspects this government forced women to do is a compulsory hijab. And uh, what that mean? It means that as a woman of uh, Iranian country, since ninety after ninety seventy nine, we don't have a choice of what to wear and how to wear. You know, I just put it simple for you. I uh, even me as a as a schoolgirl, or when we were in my generation as a schoolgirl, when we used to go to school, uh, seven years, six years old uh, girl, we used to cover our hair and cover our body because that is the Islamic uh, requirement of this government. That is a compulsory um, hijab that this government uh, uh, imposed on on women. And that really impact on a on a way many women uh, felt uh, from the from the health aspects of it because we are all uh, uh, facing with a lack of vit vitamin D. Look at that how harmful it is. And then when also we grow up and then I went to university. I remember every time I used to enter to the university, we had a. Uh, uh, you know, uh, groups of uh, uh, police or a guard that they check on a woman, how we are entering as a woman a student uh, in the university. And I used to wear nail polish and they used to sp uh, stop me in the gate and, and tell me why you have a nail polish uh, on your nail. You have to either remove it to enter to your classroom or, 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 or you need to go just not to enter to university. And then I used to I used to change my strategy. I used to wear gloves. And then they also tell me, oh, you have a gloves now. You need to remove your gloves. You still have a nail polish. So look at how the mindset was it in terms of forcing women to be treated uh, inequality. And that mindset and that, called, uh, and that um, uh, thinking and that practices of government, it's really continues until now. Recently, what happened to, to Masa Amini, which is a really young, innocent Kurdish girl, which is really hard burning. She uh, moved from her city with her brother to go to Tehran, which is a capital city in Iran, to find out about university, to where to study and what to study. And all of a sudden, this uh, uh, police that they are responsible for uh, for women's hijab, they uh, they they try to uh, stop her and, and they're trying to harm her in terms of that you you wear your hijab and even and their, their, her hijab, it, it wasn't anything wrong at all. Uh, but that is really, uh, they give their, their self um, a permission to enter to people or to women's privacy in terms of their choice, their choice of who they want to be, what they want to do, what they want to wear. And, and that's become to the, to the time that people are thinking is now far more than, than just human rights or women rights. Now it's more than 44 days that people are in the street fighting 
for their freedom, for fighting for a revolution, for a government change, that hopefully this change can uh, bring, make impact, even not only for Iranian people, but for the world. You know, because we are looking for sustainability. We are looking, we are talking about diversity and inclusion. This is itself is a matter of, it's a problem of diversity, it's the issue of a diversity and inclusion. That the whole woman being treated inequally and inclusively because of the uh, government, uh, dictatorship government uh, that currents uh, run the office in Iran. Can I just ask a question on the hijab, just to educate people who don't really know and understand the Muslim yeah. faith? So yeah. firstly, um, can you confirm the wearing of the hijab is not a requirement of the religion? It's an it's a choice that a woman can make. Well, that's 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 true, especially in the context of the Iranian culture, mm -hmm. because it really our culture it has nothing uh, to do with uh, whatever it's any religion uh, requirement it, this is just particularly is the imposement of this particular government so the hijab is a really choice you know i used to live in in a muslim country and i you, and i remember that women they had really freedom of their choice what to wear and what to not wear. But this particular government in Iran, they are trying to use the hijab in terms of creating inequality and, and forcing the woman uh, to be excluded from the society, from the activity they want to do, from, from who they want to do. And, and that's absolutely correct. It's a matter of choice. And Iranian women, they don't have this choice because of this government. So before this government came into power, the, the government mm -hmm. that's there now, did Iranian women had a choice prior to that? Oh yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. My grandmother, my mother, my um, aunties, uh, you know, um, uh, the family members, the friends who they were a generation before us, they had a choice before 1979. They had a choice of what to wear and how to wear. And the woman they used to wear the way that we wear here in Australia. You know, and if you are a Muslim and you want to cover your hair, you can cover that. If you don't want to cover, you don't cover. You had freedom of choice. You had freedom of what to wear and what to be, you know. So we had a democracy in terms of woman life before, um, uh, before this government in, in Shah time. What has happened? Hello, sorry, there was a, hello? Hello. Not sure you... what happened. Yeah, I can hear you. I think okay. there was a pause with the technology there. So that's yeah. really good for people to understand and get a context, right? So prior yeah. to um, the, the, the government that is there now, the Islamic State, as they call them, as they call themselves, yes. um, Prior to that, women in Iran actually had choice. They had democracy. They had freedom. So this this is really weaponizing uh, a, an aspect of religion and converting it to be something it was never intended to be yeah. in the in the first place. Absolutely, and you know, even even in short time, we had uh, women were free to study in universities in any uh, qualification or any degree they want to be. Um, you know, but since this um, uh, 1979, um, especially after my generation, there was a talk from the uh, current government that women are not allowed to enter in 
human resources or social, uh, um, you know, studies, um, uh, because uh, that's really harmful for a woman to study social degrees and or, or human resources subjects. So it's really been um, excluding so many women to study in a, in a degree or a qualification they are interested because of the government uh, imposement. Um, and I remember uh, there was a talk about this earlier, even uh, from the, my friends who want to study um, engineers or, uh, or other qualifications that they really harmed women um, uh, by this government. They, they harmed a lot. And they excluded women from so many things. And, uh, you know, we are more than 80 million population. And you imagine half of this is women. Yes, that is, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of women. So take us through. So there's, there's obviously people are responding to what's happening in your country in different, uh, in different ways. Tell us a bit about how you as a community are responding here. And then if you could, then educate us on what would be helpful, like for us who are really strong allies, who love our Iranian uh, counterparts, who love the women, who love the men of Iran, who really love the people of Iran, what, what is it that would be most helpful at this point in time? At the moment, I think be our voice. That is the slogan we are using, and uh, our community working so hard. My my community, um, uh, uh, every every week, uh, every weekend, uh, Saturday we have some sort of rally, or and thanks to Queensland Police and um, to the government in, in um, uh, Queensland that they're trying to support us and in Australia protecting us to do our rally and and to to try to uh, be the voice of the people of Iran because. At the moment, people of Iran, they don't have access to media, they don't have access to internet appropriately. And, um, you know, it's every day we have some uh, sort of uh, bad news is coming out of Iran. And it's a very difficult and challenging time because people are going through the stage of revolution because now people are moved from their, uh, uh, you know, aspects of human rights and women rights and, uh, and, uh, and they need uh, social freedom. And they, they just want now revolution because they think the best things for them to achieve um, uh, the best and what they wish to have it's it's just uh, moving out of this uh, government um, and that's what they are doing uh, so in the community please welcome to join us we are uh, happy to to have different people from different backgrounds and actually to the, this saturday we have a gathering in brisbane uh, city and uh, feel free to come and join us. Uh, follow our Facebook page and Instagram page that we have uh, for this movement um, and for this revolution happening in Iran. Support us in the hashtags or um, posts that we are having. You know, just our voice, that simple as I can say. What is the least helpful thing that we can do at this point in time? Because sometimes you think, because I, I like to be... I like our listeners to be educated all around because when you're dealing with a perpetrator, so if I use domestic and family violence language, sometimes the most obvious response actually aggravates 
the situation and makes the people that you're trying to help even more unsafe. And that comes from a place of ignorance and, and not really understanding how complex all of this is. So what are some of the things that as, as people who are really wanting to be allies, what are some of the things we should be avoiding? What are some of the things that are not going to be helpful? Well, well, that's a really critical question you are asking. Um, at the moment, if you can just support us in terms of, you know, um, ex excluding any conversation that around that, you know, uh, uh, Iranian women are uh, trying to just focus on uh, achieving their uh, uh, their rights of democracy. That's 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 true. What we want, but also at the same time. We want this government, we want the government change. Um, and uh, we don't want, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the other foreigners or expatriate uh, um, or, or, you know, uh, Westerners country to have negotiation with this government and give them the support. Because at the moment, uh, people of Iran, they have, they are fighting in the street with, with, without any, any weapons without anything. They are just supporting for the rights of freedom and they want their country to be free. Um, and they are looking for, for make uh, the freedom happen. Um, so that is really the way the conversation is. And hopefully that we have the support from everywhere that they can support us to achieve, um, uh, achieve this freedom. Uh, peacefully and 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 you know hopefully uh, successfully because we have a hope you know that's what we are we are hanging there Iran Iranian people now they have a hope that they can bring the change and make the change happen excellent thanks so much Rosa what are some of the misconceptions that are out there in the media that you'd like to correct? What are some of the um, the incorrect stories or incorrect narratives that the media might be putting out that would be good to 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 correct? Versus this is what the media is saying. This is mm. the the situation actually on the ground. So if I just ask a simple question, how are Iranian men on the ground responding to this situation? How are they supporting women? Oh. Uh... See, Iranian men at the moment, they are realizing that how they need to stay with the Iranian woman in, in terms of achieving this success. And they know that how their sister, their mother, their, uh, you know, their uh, uh, cousins, their, their family member, their friends, their loved one, being impacted by this uh, government inequality treatment towards uh, women, but also men's being treated really inequally in this government. In this government, every individual as a, as a human being felt some sort of uh, violence and in inequality. However, at the moment, Iranian uh, men are also trying uh, to uh, stay with Iranian women uh, alongside um, and supporting them uh, about the harm and this inequality that been imposed by the government in terms of their hijab. For example, we can see that when women are removing their hijab in the street and they trying to fight for their, you know, freedom of a choice of uh, what they want to wear. And um, as soon as the, uh, the, the, this, uh, you know, this uh, religious uh, police are coming and they want to uh, attack the woman, then all the um, men in the street, they come and to try to protect. 
but it's a critical moment. It's a really, uh, it's, it's a very challenging time uh, for, for Iranian at the moment. As I said, they are fighting for their freedom and they are fighting to bring the change to their country after 44 years. You know, we always talk among our community. Um, if we don't uh, clean our house for one week, everywhere will be dusted and, and dirty and, and it's not possible to use it. You imagine now our country for more than 43 years, we didn't, we didn't clean it up. Uh, it's a time for cleaning and bringing the change. Agree, and that's 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 a wonderful note for us to 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 conclude our discussion. Thank you so much, Rosa, for coming on Sisters in Color and really sharing so passionately about what's happening in your community, but also about your role and the amazing work that you're doing in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. We definitely need a lot more academics. We definitely need a lot more academic um, research that's Australian based so that we can use that to adapt um, all of the trainings and, you know, the data that we collect on the Australian experience. I don't think there's enough data out there. So different methodologies on how we collect data and also understanding the complexity that diversity and equity and inclusion, I think, when you look at how you contrasted it with what's happening in Iran, and you really said this is an in this is all about inequity, and that's at the core of it all, right? It's at the core of when one group of people starts to make decisions that impact a whole other group of people at a disadvantage that serves them to their advantage. And you see that perpetuated time and time and time and time. And sometimes for some of us who are former, uh, you know, come from former colonized countries, it's not even people in the majority, it's people in the minority. It's been interesting watching um, the change of Power in British politics and the conversations around, uh, you know, Rishi Sunaki's um, color, around you know how much money he has, and all of this elements of uncomfortableness uh, mm -hmm. around it. And uh, but to me, what's the most interesting is, you know, when you've got someone in a minority population ruling the majority. It's 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 a very and for the English that juxtaposition is 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 kind of doing the hidden and Trevor Noah um a, a comedian you know um he actually did a little excerpt on this which is interesting because and bear in mind this is not all British please a lot of the British people are very supportive very inclusive Britain is a very much a cosmopolitan country I've got half my family that's there so please don't take it as um painting every single British person in this in this light this is just quoting one particular incident that was quoted by Trevor Noah the host of the Daily Show where he the, somebody from some left-wing race some racist person called um a studio and said oh you know how's he how's he gonna stand up and talk to Scottish Nationalist Party or you know England is 80 percent white or whatever the statistic is you know and how how then can we have um an Indian person uh, a person of Indian origin well firstly he's British so you need to just get a different view of what Britain looks like. He is born, in, he is a Brit and he's, um, you know, and, and, and just really understanding that difference is not something to fear because a lot of this comes from fear, fear of 
I don't even know what the fear is that if somebody looks different, if somebody um, thinks differently, if somebody um, has a different point of view, that that's a threat to me. When I see that as a, and yourself working in the diversity and inclusion space from an academia, we know that that's the strength. So the slogan for my company is your difference is the advantage. It's always the advantage, you know? And so for me, you don't want to be in the room with people who think the same as you and who only think like you, how boring would that be? You know, it, and, and we are all different. There's 7 billion people on this planet and not one of us have a fingerprint that's the same. Not one of us has genetic coding that's the same. So inherent in the way nature is built is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And yet, if you look at nature, nature lives in a symbiotic relationship with the massive difference that is there. It's yes. us as humans that struggle with it. No, absolutely, absolutely, you are correct on that. And I also give that example, and you are you well said, really, it's it's a diversity and inclusion in heads and even with our nature as a human being. You know, I always give an example of uh, our hands, how one hand is shorter and one finger is shorter, one is taller and one is, and yet we, we, we need all of it because it's important. And that's really diversity and inclusion. It means everybody viewpoint and, and representation and, um, and participation is important and valid. And, and hopefully we will see by this change in Iran, we will see by the change in, um, you know, um, some other countries um, that's, you know, some Western countries like UK now, they have a different prime minister that is showing that really we are moving towards a different uh, global environment. This is a matter of sustainability, you know, and, and in Iran, we are a diverse, diverse uh, country as well. You know, we have uh, so many people with different languages, ethnicity, cultures, and yet we have a lot of religious people that they've been kind of vanished and removed from the country because of this government. So many of my refugee uh, uh, com uh, companion from Iran, they just struggle because of their only religion, what they believe, whether they are Baha'i or they are Christian, they cannot practice in Iran because of this government, you know? And, um, and of course, we hope that this change in Iran, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, makes everyone to feel um, that how they are welcome to our country as well, to Iran, and it's a beautiful country to visit and and, uh, and work with Iranian people. As you said, we, even here in Australia, we have to create that community and, and, and have these um, networks and, and co connection with also Iranian community and, and businesses that they are highly uh, successful people are here. Yeah, just on a final note, Rosa, if I went to Iran on holiday, uh, you know, when uh, there is peace and, uh, and all of that, what are some of the fun things that I could do? Oh, you know, in Iran, we have a four season, actually. And mm -hmm. in, in the south, you can go and, and, and enjoy the sun in the beach. And like, like the way Gold Coast weather it is, you know, or Brisbane weather it is. Uh, or even if, if, if you, if you want to go in the north, also, you can go also enjoy the beach and different foods and that beautiful nature. Then we have also desert if you want to go and, and, uh, and uh, uh, have a safari in the sand. Uh, uh, it's a really beautiful country with, uh, uh, you know, a lot of opportunities. We have a ski resort, which the ski resorts are uh, really famous uh, um, in the Middle East and in Europe. Uh, one of the famous and largest skill resort are in Iran. Um, so, yeah, you know, absolutely, there are a lot to do. 
when it comes comes and I, I will give you the list <laughs> oh my gosh skiing in Iran now I did not know that now I, I when I think of Iran I immediately think like Dubai it's hot and everything so I would never have thought of skiing now wow that that is mind-blowing for me so who knew you can go skiing in Iran and one of the best ski resorts in the world is in Iran I don't think people listening to this know that <laughs> if you do please leave a comment and if anybody has visited the ski resort what's the name of like what's the name of a famous ski resort oh the, uh, there are a couple of them um uh, uh, it could be kind of uh, in darbank it could be in uh, kind of um a little bit further than north uh, so there are a couple mm -hmm. of people they can go and it's really interesting and, and fun places to to visit really and we have mountain as well if you want to go and climb a mountain um, mm -hmm. so um, really Iran is a is a very rich rich country in terms of natural resources um, and also uh, you know the uh, the climate um, is beautiful. Um, so it depends uh, what time and what season you want to go and what type of activity you want to do in, in what season you are in. So every season we have a different type of foods, uh, different uh, season in terms of having fun and enjoying life. And uh, Iranian, they are really fun people. So you will really enjoy going out and, 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 and having a night life. The night life is really fresh in Iran. Um, as I said, the, uh, the majority of a population are young and this new generation of population, that's why they are so different. They are uh, so fearless and they are looking uh, for their freedom, you know. And, and then what they are saying, it's really not, not unfair. It's, they are saying if, if a woman wants to wear their hijab, they can have it. If the woman don't want to wear the hijab, they can. If people want to drink alcohol, they should be free to drink their alcohol in the street. If we want to have a fr freedom of a choice in terms of what our practices of religion it is, it needs to be that way. And they need to have, they want to have a freedom uh, and democracy in their country and change, hopefully. And that's not that's that's what all of us want. That's all. That's what every single human being wants, and it's a basic human right for everybody. And it shouldn't be something that you have to fight for, but it is. And that's the way, unfortunately, the world operates sometimes. That for for some of us, um, it's had to be a fight. For others, you're born into inherent privilege where things are just the way that they are. And so I think um, on that note, Rosa, I really want to thank you for, for your time. And thank you for changing our perceptions around Iran about this fun place, because you don't often like with the media, they don't show that, because that doesn't sell newspapers, you know, and that's a side of Iran, we want to see more of, we want to see the fun, we want to see vibrancy, we want to see uh, people out enjoying their freedoms, just like every other person. And that's what your community is fighting so hard for. So thank you so much, my friend, for coming on uh, Sisters in Colour, to mm -hmm. share your story, to share your knowledge, uh, to share your experiences, and to give us a first-hand account of what's happening in your country, as you perceive it. Because if we talk to somebody else that's different they will have a different point of view so this isn't you know um this is basically um you know rosa sharing her views on what is happening in her country what is impacting being a woman uh who's heavily involved in her community and really having first-hand knowledge 
of what's happening on the ground. So we really appreciate you and we really support you and we stand with you and we support you. Uh, so anything we can do that is helpful uh, to the cause, let us know. And having these conversations, I think, opens up the door. So where can people find you if they're really interested in your research? We'll put some details if, you, um, if you're happy to share, uh, if people want to know a bit more about your research, where they can find you, but also where if people want to get involved in activism and join your community. You mentioned something was happening on the weekend. Uh, if you can share that information, we'll also put it up uh, on yes. Sisters in Colour. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I do have a LinkedIn account and they can mm -hmm. follow my LinkedIn page. It's Rosa Faaliet, uh, my LinkedIn account. And, you know, uh, and people, they can kind of uh, send me an invitation. I will be connected. I will be happy and pleased to, to contact with people. And also on Saturday, uh, which uh, we are going to have uh, some, um, uh, you know, some sort of uh, gathering in, uh, in Brisbane City um, in front of uh, Brisbane Casino. Uh, um, you know, in Georgia Street and, and um, where we are. So as soon as you saw the slogan of a woman life freedom, um, that's our stand. <laughs> we are there and you can see we have a loud music thanks to our uh, Brisbane community. People are helping us staying and, and trying to support us. We had uh, some uh, also Australian community, they, they try to create also rally with us. That's really amazing. That shows that how people are care and, and they are kind and they give attention to, to our community and they think they, they you know, the way that they, they, they think with us. And that's, um, that's really is, is great. And we really appreciate, uh, you know, about all this democracy in Australia and the support that we have within our community. Thanks, Rosa. So everybody, thanks for tuning in for yet another episode of Sisters in Colour. We'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, Utana Consulting, for sponsoring uh, this episode. And until next time, when we have another awesome Sisters in Colour, Sister in Colour on this podcast, sharing their stories about what's important to them, what's going on in their world, um, how they got to be where they are. Until next time, bye. Bye. Is it stop?